All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today, I talk to Max Miller. Max is the creator and host of the viral digital series Tasting History with Max Miller on YouTube. Prior to his YouTube stardom, Max was an employee of Walt Disney Studios in the marketing and film distribution departments. When the COVID-19 stay-at-home order went into effect in Los Angeles, Max was furloughed and began turning his passion for historic dishes into a self-taped video series. Within weeks of his first video on YouTube, Max's channel and videos reached hundreds of thousands of viewers who wanted to learn more about historic dishes and his channel exploded in popularity. Keeping the same level of quality in every video, Max goes into great detail on some amazing topics and also shows you how to cook these in a modern kitchen, as well as teaching you a lot about history as you go along. His new cookbook is a must-buy for anybody looking to level up their cooking skills and learn a whole lot of interesting history too. Max currently resides in Los Angeles, California with his husband, Jose, and their two cats. And now, let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure to feature somebody. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of your channel, because where else can you learn about the Titanic, Till of the Han, then you're on to, like, the, you know, Nazi <laughs> Germany, Cap- Capone, all these amazing things. But for people who don't recognize you, how would you introduce yourself? I would say that uh, I am Max Miller. I have a YouTube channel and now a cookbook where I talk about history through food. Sometimes it's the history of the food. Sometimes it's the history of the people eating the food. And then I make the food. Because I love the concept of it. and I think it's the first time I've ever seen somebody educate people on history by using food. It's such a, an amazing idea, but I was really surprised that when I looked into your inspirations, you've talked about the great British Bake Off, then to Bill mm-hmm. Nye, then to Disney. There's all these amazing things. I know you're probably fed up with telling people about this, but where does the passion for history and cooking come from? You know, the passion for history comes from forever ago. When I was a little, little kid, I I think in large part it came from listening to my grandparents. My grandpa and uh, and my nana on my mom's side especially would just tell me stories of the Great Depression and World War II and what it was like growing up in the 1920s and 30s. And it was just such a foreign world to, you know, an eight-year-old living in Phoenix in 1990 or whatever. But the way that they told it, I was able to be there. They were such good storytellers. And ever since then, I've always seen history just as stories. 
Now, sometimes it can be taught poorly uh, and that it's not a story, but if it's taught well, it's just stories. So it's like reading a novel. Um, when it comes to cooking, it actually started with the Great British Bake Off. I've always been a fan of eating, but I had never baked or cooked anything until I saw that show. And and I think it was, <clears throat> excuse me, the accessibility of of that show. It's, you know, it's so different than an American cooking competition where it's like, take these five ingredients with squid ink and paper clips and make a gourmet meal. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's cool, but I'm not going to do that. Whereas the Great British Bake Off, especially in the early seasons, um, it was always something that you wanted to eat. And you could learn how to bake by watching the show. I don't think it's the case anymore, but especially when Mary Berry was still on it, she, they would talk about why a cake deflated or why the why this bread was too dense and and how to fix it and then they would actually have extra episodes called masterclass where they would literally teach you how to make something that they had made on the show they also had history sections where they would talk about the history of the battenberg cake or whatever they were making and so that that is what got me into it I was like, oh, it's the history of of what they're making. Now I want to make that. And so I just decided to to learn how to bake and and watching that show was was the first step in doing that. I love it. I, I love how you use stories in your family, you know, to sort of educate and ed- entertain and it's I think that's a great thing about humans is we have to you know, we learn best by telling stories. And, yeah. you know, I think it's it's something that you see in generations like grandparents, you know, teaching their grandkids with stories to entertain and educate, etc. But use, the, like, food as, like, a delivery mechanism for your, your stories. Why did you go from that approach? Was it to c- combine the two loves? Or have you always <clears throat> enjoyed looking into, like, the food and the culture and their attitude towards food? No, uh, it, it, like I said, it really came with Great British Bake Off was I had never, I mean, all history has always entertained me, but it was them exploring food through history. And it was only, you know, there are two minute segments on the, on the show uh, when they used to do that. And that, so then when I started baking things and bringing them into work, I would kind of mimic that and I would tell the history of whatever I was baking. And I soon graduated from the Great British Bake Off and what they were making and started making all sorts of medieval dishes. And I would bring them into work and tell people the history. And because I, I, I've always liked telling people about history. And so this was kind of like, here's some, you know, profiterals and a lesson. <laughs> so it's kind of sneak in the education there. <laughs> Um, and so I think that that's kind of where it came from, but I have always found just daily life, the mundane, very interesting when thinking about historical figures or just general populations of the past. You know, so often history is just taught by the great events and the great events are incredibly important 
But it's also interesting to think, well, yes, there was the Battle of Waterloo, but I bet they got hungry beforehand and wanted to eat something, you know, and just thinking of that or the clothes that they were wearing. Gosh, how uncomfortable were their shoes walking, you know, across the, the Russian tundra or whatever. It, it's those things that kind of help you put yourself into into their into their shoes, I guess. Because it is a great, like every every episode I've looked, you go into such great detail, you show the texts, you know, that you discuss how things are, and you kind of weave it together in the story that doesn't just educate, it actually, like, inspires you to then want to know more about it, and like you're saying, put, put yourself in their place and want to find out more, but you're one of the few people I've ever met um, who have covid to, to almost a thunk in a way because yeah. you got furloughed during disney and i mean i um i had to take some time off and it gave me a chance to sort of reset catch up with my job learn about the role more etc how how do you think do you look at being made furloughed now as a good thing you know did you, how did you struggle with that sort of loss of identity getting put on furlough and then kind of finding your I don't know, it's your, your, your passion in YouTube? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was really hard at first because I loved my job at Disney. And so being furloughed was devastating in a way. Um, and honestly, even years after the fact, because I haven't now worked there for three years, but until about a year ago, I still considered myself like a Disney employee even though i wasn't um it was just so so much of my identity and my friends were there and 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 everything but um i i had to have something else to focus on you know we were all stuck in our houses i was stuck in a little apartment and i needed to stay out of jose my my husband's hair uh who was still working for disney and so i had tasting history, which I had just started a couple weeks before. It just happened that I had started this project just before COVID hit. And so I was able to just fall into it. And like all of my time would go to, to this and taking walks around the neighborhood. Um, but, you know, obviously nobody was really watching in those first couple months. And so it was just something to keep me busy. Um, but then very quickly, it also became something to, you know, really celebrate when people did start watching and, and it became so, so much more very quickly. Cause it's such a brave move at that time to kind of say, you know, I'm going to move away. I'm going to go, I start my own thing. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people who have said, I had an idea for something, but the second COVID hit, they were like, no, 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 I've got, I'm going to stay in my job. I'm going to stay where it's safe. How did you overcome that fear? Because to go from sort of like employee to entrepreneur, that's quite a scary jump. Did you, was it just, you just kept going forward and suddenly this thing spiraled or did, was it a plan to kind of build a business? How did you approach that? So, I mean, it wasn't brave on my part because I had no say in it. I was furloughed. They, they said, don't come to work anymore. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that I had the option to stay at my job and I decided to leave. I was very good point. <laughs> I had nothing. I had no other options. Um, 
and you know it's not like anyone was hiring or anything like that uh other than you know maybe delivery food delivery or something um but this after about a year then disney called me back and said hey theaters are reopening come on back to work and that was a bit of a scary moment fortunately for me tasting history had taken off by then so it was it was doing very well and so while it was scary to say sorry disney i'm not coming back i'm doing this full time it it wasn't as scary as if it had just been still a passion project it was a business by the time i had to make that decision i like the way you could have looked at that as kind of like i don't really have a choice i'm going to go for it and i think a lot of people get held back because they they always fear you know the unknown and yeah. you know, people say oh you know sit down and write out what's worrying you and things like that but a lot of times it's you don't have an option just to go for it because you you were self-taught um like you know you learned to, to bake through mary mary berry i still yep. love that connection and you know you built your channel and you've learned how to edit and film etc what's that taught you about being sort of self-taught and you know sort of learning these skills and filling the knowledge gaps and stuff like that how have you how have you found that what's it taught you about yourself um one thing that's taught me is that i'm i'm capable of doing pretty much anything in a mediocre way <laughs> because one thing i have learned especially when it comes to things like editing and and whatnot is there are other people who can do it so so much better um you know lighting i every single week still i struggle lighting myself before filming working the camera all of the technical aspects it's just no matter how much time i put into it i i only have so much time because really i'm working on the content um and so it makes me appreciate people who actually do that kind of thing for a living and one thing i learned was when i was writing my cookbook i very quickly learned that there was a skill that i needed that i couldn't fake that i couldn't learn very quickly uh, and that is the art of actually writing a recipe um you know and on the show i i talk through the recipe and what i'm doing and everything it's a very different skill to put that down in writing so someone who is not there with you can recreate it. And so I ended up hiring someone and Folkbind to work on that with me. And and that actually taught me that I need to do that more often. I need to hire, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt to get some help with editing and 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 lighting and and some of that stuff. Granted I haven't, I still do it all by myself, but um but I should eventually. <laughs> it, it's amazing, like, because when you watch the show and you think you're doing all this, you know, like the depth of your research is amazing. The the fact that you make these things or take like historical texts or weird ingredients and you bring it in with this modern kind of focus and you educate and you make it fun. Like every episode is a gem. Like it's hard to watch yeah, one episode. You want to go through your back catalogue, through the playlist, and you always find something new about life and 
like a, a part of history that you thought you knew well. And I love that you're going through food and you open up so many avenues to things. Why do you think you've been so successful? What do you think makes it so popular? Um, I think it's the story aspect. And, you know, it's, it is something that I didn't really, <clears throat> that I didn't know that I could do as well as I have. And I've gotten better, I feel. You know, I go back and watch episodes from two years ago, and it's like, wow, I think I've really improved in my storytelling capabilities. Um, everyone likes watching Game of Thrones and, you know, uh, the Tudors and all of these things that are either historical or based in history. Game of Thrones is very much based in the conquest of England by and the War of the Roses, you know, and but it's told as a story with an arc with characters. And so I try to bring that to history, to whatever I'm talking about. Sometimes it's easier than, than others. Um, but I think that that's kind of what has made it successful is that it's not just a series of facts, or at least I try not to do that. It's there's an arc to it. Everyone likes stories. And, and I think that's what it is. Because I love like when you're you know you're going through episodes and you know you're talking about like texts that you found so you relate to like like in the um, Hadrian's Wall episode you were talking mm -hmm. about like guy that was there looking after the pigs and you know you you brought you brought the whole thing to life <clears throat> and I love that when you're speaking it's like you could feel that you were sitting having a beer with you while you're cooking telling me about something you know it's like a one-to-one -one basis and it's it's nice to see that your personality on the show is the same that it's you and i think that's rare in a lot of youtube you know people have these sort of characters they play and i love that you're you in social media and your show it's and you're so warm and friendly and it's, it's and you're disgustingly happy with your partner and as a very single person <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, you know, I um I am not I I don't think I could keep up being someone totally different uh for for very long. Um I'm just not that good of an actor, I've, I I realize. Um so just being myself on on camera and and kind of talking how I normally would is just more sustainable. Um now of course you you only see the best version of me on on YouTube typically, uh, but but it is very much it is not a character. It's you know it's just me talking d the same way that I talked to my coworkers about history, the same way that I I bore Jose with with stories that I find interesting, and um, you know it it is very much just me talking to someone across the the kitchen table that someone is a camera of course but still whenever i film i just picture my friend uh maureen across from me and i'm just talking to her and i've i've had opportunities to you know make the production quality a lot better and you know do a bigger kitchen and travel and stuff like that and i am trying to do a little bit of that <clears throat> especially the travel but i i don't really want to to change the fact that I am just sitting at a counter talking because 
that is part of the the charm uh, that that I found people enjoy. It is just definitely a conversation. Uh, and I think that's something I I loved about it. It was like you forget everything else. It's like you're you're speaking to me, you know, or you're speaking to like Joneses or whoever is listening. And that connection is perfect. And you know, you improve the lighting, you improve the backgrounds and stuff like that. But you're the star of it, I think. And you're bringing us into this thing that, and you feel the passion that you have, and it inspires us to be in, interested in it. And it, you have an amazing way of doing it. But what has been something that you've looked into? I mean, you seem to really like like the Titanic. You know, you've oh, got yeah. a series about the cooking stuff. Has there been something you've looked into or sort of gravitated towards, or has there been something that you've learned that has really surprised you or sort of em- you've embraced more or wanted to learn more about by what you found out on the show? So much. It's, <clears throat> it's funny. I, the, the episodes that are the hardest for me are the ones that I don't know anything about, um, say, uh, a dish from ancient China. Uh, I don't know a lot about the history. I don't know a lot about the cuisine. So, and, you know, a lot of it needs translating and everything. So it, it takes a lot more time to do it. But those are also the episodes I enjoy the most. They're the hardest yet they're the most rewarding for me because I'm getting to learn from scratch and there's nothing I enjoy more than learning. And so, you know, it, it's, it, it's the most fun for me. Um, and every single week though, it's like a new, it, there's a new topic. And so that is my most, that is what I'm most interested in at any given time, what I am working on for the next episode. I never look back, um, or very, very rarely. Once in a while, I will, if I'm kind of stuck on, I don't know what to do an episode about or whatever, I'll just go kind of flip through old scripts and be like, oh, yeah, there was this topic that I didn't get to delve into as much. Um, but I I have kind of this ability to to get distracted very, very easily. <laughs> Because I get interested in whatever is put in front of me. Um, so, you know, often I'll be writing an episode and then I'll realize that I've started researching something totally different that'll be for a future episode uh, because I'm just interested in whatever is being, you know, whatever I'm reading at the moment. It's very easy, isn't it? It's like everybody told me that I had to niche down the podcast and I'm like, no, no. Whatever I am interested in, I'm like, right, got to get him on, got to get her on. Got... And before you know it, I can imagine it's the same for you. You're like nine different journeys of of strands of things you think. I'll pull on that. And it kind of leads on to the next kind of question. I, I was really interested in, there was that great saying that history is written by the winners. You know, like Rome wiped Carthage off after like Hannibal, etc. So like there's a lot of things that kind of disappear because... They, you know, people didn't want so and so's teachings to be passed on, or you know, we've only got um, little bits of history or pottery, etc. How do you research these things? You know, how do you take like a historical text, an old age concept, make it so that you can create it in a modern kitchen, add a Mac sparkle to it, 
and then <laughs> make a weave a weave a story around it. Because how do you, how do you learn enough about it to inspire and to create that kind of episode? I don't know. Um, every week, it's kind of just, I start out with the same question: How am I going to possibly do this? <laughs> um, so, it, well, it's funny. So, you say history is written by the winners, um, and and I, I do agree that that is so often true. But for me, history is written by the people who write things down, because not every the, the Mongolian Empire they were the winners. But they didn't write anything down. So we actually, everything we know or most of what we know about them comes from the people they conquered who were writing things down. So most of it's not very flattering. Um, That's a good point. I I never thought of that. Yeah. And it's not always the case, but it's usually the people who write things down. I mean, Pliny the Elder from ancient Rome, so much of his stuff is just ridiculous. Herodotus. I, I love Herodotus, but his history is mostly myth but he wrote it down and so that is what you know becomes the truth to a degree um and so i that's what i gravitate toward are those kind of first person accounts and luckily with the internet and with different libraries and museums putting things online you can get a hold of almost anything. Finding it is sometimes the hardest part, knowing what to look for, knowing what is out there. Um, but I kind of keep a running list and I'm always finding new new sources and everything. And there is always a point in the week when I have to stop researching because I do an episode every week. And so I kind of know when I have enough when I know enough about a topic that I can talk about it, I never know everything about the topic. And that's good because it allows me to, to make another episode in the future on that topic, because there's just always more information to mine. Um, But figuring out exactly when I'm done (laughs) learning is, is the hardest part. And usually it's simply because I have to film this tomorrow if I'm going to get a video up on Tuesday. Because I can imagine how deep a rabbit hole some of this <clears> stuff can be, you know, like just some oh, of yeah. like the snippet videos you do, and you're like, you know, you you could talk for hours on it, and I can see you're just getting started, that glint in your eye, and you're like, okay, this is going to be a playlist, this is going to be a series, yeah, because you've got ones on pirates, war videos, um, obviously the Titanic series, which is so fascinating to see the quality of food that was, you know, that. I think we we get shaped by films, and then when you see what mm-hmm. they were actually served, or the Great Depression, like the meal yeah. trays, I was like, that looks really nice. You know, it's, we we have these concepts in our head, and it's how do you think sort of future generations are going to see the foods we have now? You know, because we look back and go, yeah, we're much healthier, but you know, we've got processed foods, etc. You know, however. How do you see like the foods of yesteryear shaping our modern foods, and how do you think we're going to be like judged by the next generations? You know, I think that for the most part, we'll be. I hope we are judged pretty harshly because I really hope that we do get back to more whole foods and cooking and everything. But 
I don't think that that's actually going to be the case. I think that food is going to continue because of the sheer quantity that has to be produced and the sheer pace that the world moves at. I think it's going to get worse and worse. Um, and we'll just kind of keep following, falling down that rabbit hole. I, I hope I'm wrong. And I'm sure that in some, you know, food is so diverse in some places, it's very different. And uh, of course, in some economic levels, it's very, very different. Uh, so, you know, what you can afford on a certain salary is going to give you just a better quality of food. So I, but I do think that the processed foods and everything, while the processes will change, I, I think that that's kind of here to stay. I don't think we'll ever go back to people always cooking and going to the grocery store. And I'm guilty of, of eating processed foods and, and just ordering out and everything like that. So I can't really say that it's, it's terrible. It's just probably not ideal. Yeah, cause I would love to say I haven't lived off ready meals for a while, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was I mean, it's, it's just too easy. It's, it's, it's a matter of convenience and very rarely do people say, I'm going to do something that is harder than what I'm currently doing. I'm going to make my life a little more difficult. It just doesn't happen that way. Um, even though eating, eating healthy and, you know, fresh is probably better in the long run. And most people think in the short run, myself included. So, It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and level up. So you I mean you do a lot of these amazing meals and you know you you bake and you make soups and you know the, like the Cap, um, Al Capone soup for example was one of the <laughs> nicest looking soups. Never mind the the whole gangster and the Saint Valentine's massacre and, it, and I was just <laughs> looking at it going, I quite like this guy now. You know? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So how have you found like the doing that? You know, is there sure like an entry level? methods of cooking or have you found certain types of foods that you would recommend people to try who do want to move away from the processed food or the unhealthy options and start cooking a bit more and you know becoming like i was gonna say one with the food but you know what i mean like getting a bit more involved with their food and where it comes from etc yeah um soups and stews are just the easiest and most forgiving thing to start with there's there's little work that you have to do it's usually just put everything into the pot and let it go um you know time is the the hardest thing is a lot of times you want to slow cook it or whatever um and if it's too salty just add more water if it's not salty enough add more salt it's so easy in that respect um i would say that don't start with 
baking. That's what I started with, but it is the most technical. It's the most frustrating. It's the most easily um, mess upable, <laughs> easy to mess up. Um, and, and you often don't realize that you've messed it up until after six hours of work have, has gone into a loaf of bread. Um, it's the most rewarding for me, but it's also the most difficult. I, I do think that part of the, the thing that a lot of people have trouble with, and I had trouble with, one of the reasons that I gravitated toward baking rather than cooking was the lack of specificity in so many cooking recipes. You know, the the two t- words that I just can't stand is to taste, even though sometimes I, I use that in recipes, but add blah, blah, blah to taste. Well, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what it's supposed to taste like or whatever. Whereas with baking, it is exact quantities, exact measurements. Um, and so that it's it's just a bit of a crutch. Whereas with cooking, it's easier to to fix mistakes, but you have a lot more room for mistakes because, you know, sometimes the rules just are a little more, a little more fluid. Cause there's, um, I don't know if you know, sorted food with like Ben Eberl, et cetera. Yeah. And, yeah. um, they look at that, what is it? 160 year old cookbook It's a French cookbook and it's just a list of ingredients. And you have to literally go from like chapter to chapter as you find the sauces and they just assume, you know, how to make it. And that's like my idea of hell. Like I need to be seen. I need to see the pictures and go, ah, right. That's what I'm aiming for. Cause. Yeah. Well, that's cookbooks throughout most of history. And it's because with the exception of some mostly English, actually cookbooks that were written for um, households, most cookbooks through history until around the mid 1800s were written for cooks. They were written for professional chefs in professional kitchens. And so you don't need to, you know, say make a beurre blanc and then they know how to make the beurre blanc. They just needed to know that they're supposed to do it at this point in, in the recipe. But if you aren't a professional chef, you won't know what to do, (laughs) you know? So it's, it's, it, the audience is just a very different audience uh, who who is reading those recipes than if you picked up, you know, a book by Ina Garden today, where it's she writes it for someone who doesn't necessarily know much about cooking. Because that kind of actually leads us perfectly on. Cause, I mean, you've just brought, uh, well, you're bringing out <clears throat> your amazing looking cookbook. I mean, just yes. reading it makes me salivate, you know, and it's. Yes, I'm very excited. And there's, there's so many parts to that, you know, it's just like, oh, that I can't wait for that. And how, you know, because your episodes are amazing. I, I can imagine it's become a process of, you know, you're trying to avoid that and lead people to not only understand the food, but to make it. What went into your like the process of this kind of bringing out your own cookbook and make it like you know leading people into the history, but also to make the foods? How did you pick the recipes? How did you kind of create the how to as much as the story? You know, how did you combine? Yeah. <clears throat> so um, obviously, the writing of the history had to be very different because when I'm talking about the history in a show, it's a little more off the cuff, very conversational. It needs to be written 
in a different manner. So I kind of had to learn how to write history without being dry. You know, I still want my personality in there, but it also can't be, uh, you know, exactly conversational. And because it is a cookbook and the publisher thinks of it as a cookbook, there's only a certain amount of history that I, you know, could, could put in. I can't have 10 pages of history for every recipe. Um, so, so there was kind of that, all right, where, what do I really want to talk about here? What, what's the story um, that I want to focus on? I can't meander like I often do in the episodes. Um, the, the bulk of the work for me was really fine tuning the recipes because when I'm doing them for the episodes, it's very much, this is a, you know, I do it very quickly. I try to follow the recipe from history and sometimes I'll play with a few ingredients to, to make something so that it will work as, as a dish, but I'm tasting the dish for the first time at very often at the end of the episode, you know, what I'm just tasting it that once. So it's not always perfect. It's, uh, you know, sometimes things have gone wrong. Well, that you can't do that in the cookbook. <laughs> things need to go right in the cookbook. Uh, so just testing the recipes. And luckily, I have a group of fans uh, on Patreon who tested a lot for me. So I would test it a few times. And once I thought that I had it, then I would give it to 10 of them and say, hey, can you follow my instructions and uh, tell me what you come up with? And sometimes it was like, yes, this worked. And then sometimes I would get 10 different things back being like this, what this worked, this didn't, you know. Um, but and it's also great because they're all at different levels of cooking expertise. So, you know, I could write for, for multiple, multiple levels of, of home chef. Um, that, that was the most labor intensive part. Determining what recipes I was going to do, a good portion of them are from the show, kind of things that I wanted to re reexamine, that I wanted people really to make at home, like the semlor and uh, the, the syllabub. Some are more difficult than others. Some are very, very simple. But then I also wanted to throw in a few that were kind of like, well, you're probably not going to make this at home, like hardtack. Um, you know, it's super simple and the history is fascinating, but nobody wants to eat hardtack, but it has to be in there because it is so interesting and it's just kind of part of the show. Um, and there are a few others, but most of them are are, are quite delicious. And then there's a, a whole section, of, you know, and they're intertwined, but there are a lot of new recipes as well that I'll probably end up making into episodes. I've actually got one that I am making into an episode. Um, so because I didn't want to just have stuff from the show, partly because I wanted people to have something new and partly because going back is something that I don't like necessarily doing. So I wanted new stuff in there as well, simply so it would be interesting to me to, to work on it. I love how you're sort of bouncing off the audience and say, you know, like using their like experience or interest to sort of see how the feeds back. Oh, I wish I was on your Patreon now. Cause <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, I mean, them, that, that group, it, I of course converse with a lot, 
Uh, but my audience just in general, whether it's on Discord or Reddit or in the YouTube comments or Facebook, the the amount of information I'm able to get from my audience is invaluable. Um, whether that be on, you know, what topic should, uh, should I be making videos on? What interests you? Um, usually I end up just going with what interests me, but sometimes those two things converge, you know, somebody will, so many of my episodes have been somebody saying, Hey, I would love to see an episode on blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, Oh, and I, look up what that is. And I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. Yes, I'm going to fall down this rabbit hole. Um, and then I'm also able to, less so now, but really when I started out, the audience was so important in getting my videos up to a quality, up to a higher standard. Because, you know, I had planned on making videos for a year before anyone would really watch them, because that's how many YouTubers start you make 50 or 100 videos before you really find an audience. So you have that time to learn your editing, to learn your storytelling, your lighting, all of these kinds of things. I didn't have that uh, because I was fortunate enough that the channel took off after about four months. And so very quickly, I had, you know, people sometimes nicely, sometimes not so nicely saying, you know, you should your lighting sucks, your sound, blah, 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 your, uh, why are you laughing at your own jokes? Why are you doing this? And so that would, I, I would make the change. Or sometimes I would not, you know, if I, if I thought, you know what, actually, no, I like it the way that I do it. I'll keep it. But a lot of times, you know, if a lot of people are saying something, you can probably rely on that criticism. I love it because I can still remember some of my first <laughs> negative comments. It was things like, I don't like his accent. And I remember trying to change it slightly. And then I thought, yeah, it's the only, no. I've really got. <laughs> the only one I've got. I can't really do anything about it. And how, what have you learned about food and like the importance it plays in culture? You know, because you see these foods like in, like, especially in like the Asian communities, et cetera, you know, food has got such a, a, pr a prime place in like festivals and ceremonies, and there was always like food offerings to the gods and things like that. What is what have you found about the way food is played, or uh, like how we approach it in society? Has it changed over the generations, or mm -hmm. have we focused on it more? I mean, it's omnipresent in in history, and that's kind of why it works for the show, because I can tell almost any story that I want and somehow link it back to food because everyone eats. Um, we are, I found that in, in modern times, we don't have the same reverence for food that we, that humans have until very, very recently, until like the last 70 years or so. For the majority of human history, the majority of a person's money was spent on food, not on housing, not on, you know, not cars or clothes or anything. It was food. Uh, you look through history and typically to buy a chicken would cost the equivalent of today $200, $300. Well, now Jeez. I can go down to the store and get a chicken for six bucks, you know, so food costs has just come down so much. And while there is still food scarcity 
in, in parts of the world, most of the Western world has plenty of it. And so there's just our our being does not revolve around getting food the way that it used to. Um, granted, I think of food all day, but I am not thinking, am I going to be able to get food? You know, um, so there's a, I think our appreciation of it, of the work that goes into making it has really, really gone down, especially with machines and, you know, uh, just farming techniques today. Not everybody is going out and working in the fields all day and spending most of their time reaping and sowing. Um, but I do think that food still maintains the communal nature that it always had. Maybe to agree to a degree less than than in the past, but still, you know, sitting around with your family and eating, it's just something that you do that uh, with friends, it it just brings people together to share that that meal. I was recently in Morocco and there was kind of a dish that just exemplified this. I we were at my or our driver's house with his entire family, extended family, they all lived together and they made couscous and it was in a giant bowl and everybody ate out of one bowl because I and my parents were there. We all ate with forks, but typically it's eaten with your hands. Everybody just grabs the piece and, you know, eats it out of one bowl. And it's so, it's so communal uh, more than almost any dish that I've, that I've ever had. Uh, the whole experience was just wonderful to see the whole family come together to basically eat out of one massive bowl of food. It was, it was wonderful. And I think that that, um, that experience is still with us. Maybe not exactly like that, but even just sharing a pizza, you know, it's, it's just such a way to bring people together. I do love those kind of things where it's like a meal that brings a family together and everybody's, you know, like mixing and mashing and like, like you're saying, having that kind of communal experience because unfortunately a lot of us go to the, you know, like pick up like a, a meal on the go, or, you know, the drive through and all those sort of things. Was there times that you found food went from something just to sustain you, to fuel you, to suddenly the exuberance, the showing off? What is there a time period that you would go to to show people when it became like, whoa, let's show off by having gooses inside of this and that? And you know, like, because right. people always think of Titanic because that's what we relate to. But is there a time period that you think of? Like, do you find the the weird stuff, the things that like maybe the ancient Egyptian, like slaves ate? Or are you more interested in the more out there stuff? You know, do you have a favorite time period? Or when did food become more of a, like, you know, look at me rather than a let's keep you alive kind of deal? I know there's about 50 right. questions in there, but. <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, I think when it, when it became a look at me rather than just keep me alive, I think that goes to before we were even human. Because other animals, you know, still hoard food 
to show their dominance over over others, and that is exactly what humans have done for for thousands of years. So I think that that is a primeval kind of thing. The the first time that you know somebody had two sheep instead of one, that was the first time that they lorded food <laughs> over each other as a way to say, "Hey, I have more than I need, and that makes me better than you." Now I think that we have that gets to an extreme in you know ancient rome and especially in medieval europe when there were people with just so much wealth that it makes the wealthy today <laughs> look not so wealthy i mean if you if you look at how much someone like william the conqueror was worth he literally owned england that's he was in charge of all it, just so much wealth and he just didn't have that much to spend it on today you've got you know vacations and cars and all of this stuff back then you had clothes you had a castle you had a private army and you had food and so people showed off with their food and so you know, bringing spices from halfway around the world. It would be like bringing moon rocks back today um, and having chefs that would create things like the cockatrice and just these showpieces on the on the dinner table. The medieval times were really, I, I feel, of when that just got out of control. And it stayed out of control for most of the rest of history. I mean, the, the Renaissance, of course, each time period has their own uh, flavor of, of outlandishness when it comes to food, but it, it is, has always been a way to show off even today, you know, just going to, uh, I can't remember, Salt Bay's restaurant and getting that like $2,000 golden hamburger or whatever that isn't actually supposed to even taste good, but <laughs> it's just a way to be able to show off um, it's no different than a private jet or a Lamborghini in many ways. It's, it's a way to show your wealth and I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, it's probably too, when you see like the small portions you get in some of these fancy places, I'd be like, yeah, let, give me, um, you know, keep packing it on. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Cause for me, I, I mean, I was brought up in the Highlands of Scotland, so for me, it was like fresh fish, and you know, you get you got a lot of like vegetables out there, like the local area, mm -hmm. etc. And I interviewed uh, Doctor Mahmoud Gamun, and you know, he's a, a gut specialist, and he was saying how our digestive like bacteria, etc., is shaped by the foods that our parents have ate, our grandparents, etc. We kind of mm. we we need that kind of food. And, the, you know, in the Hadrian's Wall episode, for example, when you're talking about Roman soldiers using the supply chains to order foods in from their, like, local communities, like, they're, you know, like, um, coming from wherever they were, like, they were originally from, etc. How, how have you found that, like, people, you know, have you found that your own style of food that you were brought up on, has has this kind of opened up your eyes to different styles of foods, your understanding of food of your own, your own culture, your own kind of foods, your own like your partner's kind of upbringing and his approach to foods and what, yeah. what's doing the show taught you about these sort of things? Yeah, I, you know, I was very fortunate that my parents 
always had us trying new foods and and different things, different different types of cuisine. So, you know, I'm I haven't always just been a macaroni craft macaroni and cheese and fish sticks kind of kind of guy. But um, so I've I've always enjoyed trying new things, but no matter how delicious something is, a new food is never going to give you the same feeling as the food that you ate when you were a kid that just makes you feel safe and, you know, Heinz ketchup on <laughs> French fries or whatever. It's the, the stuff that you grew up with is has a different power over you. And that is something that is universal. Uh, I mean, Mexican food in general, I, I grew up eating a lot of Mexican food. I get a different feeling when I eat it. It's not necessarily that it tastes better, though it does, but it's also the feeling, the emotions that are attached to that food. And so I think that, that it's the same thing with the people at Hadrian's Wall. It's, it's the, you can bring home to you with food. You know, you're you're two thousand miles away from Syria. You'll probably never be in Damascus again in your life. But to eat some of the same spices that just transport you, it's like that scene in Ratatouille when you know the food critic eats the ratatouille and is transported back to his childhood. Food has that effect. Food and music, I think, both have that effect on us. I'm currently uh, working on an episode on ice cream served to the U.S. Navy during World War II. And they went to great lengths to get these boys who were in the jungles of the South Pacific ice cream. And ice cream in the South Pacific does not last very long. But So they had to do a lot to get them ice cream, but it was just so important for them to have that as a way to remember home remember the people that they were you know fighting for and everything and only food can can kind of do that and we put so much emphasis on that feeling and i I think it's for good reason because it it is important because i think that definitely comes across in your channel you know it's that love for it but it's the the understanding and it's like making people realize where our cultures came from and how it can bring us together and you know communities and how it kind of it bonds us almost in a way and but how we can connect with one another through food and it's you know you go to a lot of these sort of like random places and you'll see how people share and connect with each other and a lot of times it's like through communal meals and stuff like that and it is beautiful and and that's what I love about your channel is you teach us and you you open up our experiences to these things. But how on earth do you juggle this? I mean, you've got, you know, you've you got your own like channel, you know, you're doing content, you've got your own personal life, you've got this amazing relationship, you've got all these conflicting demands. How, how on earth? Because when I struggle doing a full-time job in content creation, never mind editing, putting it out, social media, you just seem naturally... At the perfect at this, like for somebody uh, wanting to get to juggle these things, <clears throat> any tips? <laughs> How can we survive? Uh, no, um, it is not easy at all. It's sometimes overwhelming um, and super stressful. And 
you know, when I worked at Disney, I had my job and then I had my personal life. Well, tasting history is my personal life in a way. Everything I do kind of revolves around it. And I don't think that's necessarily a good or bad thing. I'm able to step away sometimes, but I'm never really able to get away from it. I'm always thinking about it. It's it's always on my mind. And, you know, Jose is very involved in in it in in the back as well so even when we're you know off on vacation doing something it's always kind of omnipresent tasting history um but i do have to take take time and be like i am not creating anything this weekend like this weekend i'm going home to phoenix to be with my family for a few days and i will not work um, but the entire time I'll be thinking about the next episode and, you know, other, other things like that, but I, I enjoy it. So that's okay. But, um, it, it is hard to, to step away from it when it's, when it's something like this, when, especially when you're the only one kind of doing it, uh, you know, if I left Disney for a week, Disney would be fine. Uh, if I left Tasting History for a month, well, there would be no Tasting History. There would be no episodes coming out. There'd be yeah. nothing. I don't so feel it. <laughs> yeah, no. So it's, it is very different. Um, and so it's both extremely rewarding and extremely uh, frustrating and exhausting sometimes. And I can see why creators uh, experience burnout. Um I, I don't want to say I've ever been burned out, but there are definitely times when the wick is low, it, you know, where there are times where it's like, okay, I'm working on an episode and I'm just not excited to be working right now. It's work um, where then there are weeks where all I want to do is sit and research and write and edit and everything. And it goes in waves. And I think that's just like everything else in your life, but you got to keep doing it. Um, for me, I've never missed a Tuesday episode, but I kind of feel like it'll be like the gym. If I miss one, it's going to be real easy to miss two and three. And so I just try not to miss one. Beautiful advice, because it's like what they say about the heart rate monitor. If you try to keep it in the middle and avoid the highs and the lows, you flatline, and that's you. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's so true. Yeah, no, there are highs and there are lows. And um Overall, I enjoy them both. Uh, it's just that, and and you know, when there are lows, then when I do get back into the groove or whatever, it's it's even more rewarding. Um, so there is that. Uh, one thing I that used to really affect me that doesn't affect me as much now because I just don't pay as much attention to it. I still do, but not as much. <clears throat> is simply how a video is doing. It used to be. That if a video flopped, I would be depressed for the next week and barely be able to work. And uh, that it, it's still obviously upsetting. You put a lot of work into something and then it doesn't do well. Um, but I don't pay as much attention to it. I'm, I'm kind of able to, after that first day, be like, eh, that's out the door, moving on to the next. Um, and I think that that's really important in content creation because it's it really is not a reflection on you because some of my best episodes haven't done that well. 
and some of the ones that I think were not my best have done extremely well. So sometimes it's simply, what are people interested in at that moment that I happen to post? How's the algorithm doing? What else has been posted? There's so much that you have no control over that you just kind of got to be like, eh, next, moving on. It's good to know that feeling never goes away because I'm like that no. just now. You know, never goes away. Never goes away. Uh, but it does get easier to, to a degree simply because you, you get overwhelmed with other things and so you have to stop paying attention to it as much. Well, I've got to have you back on because I think we're just touching the surface. There's still thousands of questions. You're such a nice guy, and I'm just I'm gatty to end it because I know we're taking <laughs> time. But for those Thank listening, you. I normally do like a kind of what do you want? You know, what should we take from this episode? Or you know, what's the like the most important message or points? What what would you want people to take from this? But also it's perfect time for a sell of the, the book. You know, why should we subscribe? Why should we buy the copy of the book? Because I cannot big up your channel more than I do. And I always recommend it to people, but for people who are listening thinking, what an awesome guy, I, you know, but I, I want to know more about the book. What can we take from this and why should we buy the book? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's like, I, I always come back to stories. The book is filled with stories. Every recipe is a story, meaning that it's actually accompanied by a story from history that are interesting. And you don't have to be interested in everything um, because I do bounce around so much. There's always some part of history or some part of cuisine that will interest you. Uh, if it's not, you know, Japanese cuisine or whatever, Maybe it's cuisine from Renaissance Italy or uh, something from the Civil War, the American Civil War or whatever. Um, that's that's kind of why I bounce around is because I'm rarely interested in something for more than a couple of weeks at any given time. So I'm always jumping to whatever is next. Um, but it also means that there's something for everyone because everybody eats. Everybody has a history. And so there's something for everyone in the cookbook and on uh, on the show. And honestly, even if you don't cook, this is a cookbook that you could still have. You could there's enough in there that you could just sit down and read it as a series of stories and never cook one thing from it. And it would be just as rewarding. So you're getting two books for the price of one. I love that. Exactly. Exactly. And. Until we can do a round two, until we can follow the get the book and do all these amazing things, how can we follow you? How can we connect with you on social media and see this kind of amazing thing that you're building? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram, Tasting History with Max Miller, on Twitter, Tasting History One. Um, both of those are the best way to, to kind of converse and in the YouTube comments. I miss a lot of things simply because of the amount of stuff coming through. But uh, I, I usually end up getting back to everyone eventually. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. 
Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.